Understand that a lady waited until the last minute to send out her Christmas cards. Everybody got your Christmas cards out? Done? Out of the way? Well, you still got time if you haven't. Anyway, she waited until the last minute and she had 49 people on her list. So she rushed to the store, bought a package of 50 cards without really looking at them. Still in a hurry, she rushed home, addressed 49 envelopes, and signed the cards without really reading the message inside. On Christmas Day, things had finally settled down and quieted down a little bit. And she happened to come across the leftover 50th Christmas card. And she decided, I better read the message that's in that. And so she opened the card that she had sent to her 49 friends. And much to her dismay, here's what it said. This card is just to say, a little gift is on its way. (laughs) You better read those messages carefully. They can get you into trouble. But have you ever given out any thought to why we send out cards and give gifts in the first place? Let's be honest. Why do we give gifts? Think about that for a moment. Why do we give gifts to one another? I thought about that question, I pondered, I wrestled with it, I analyzed it, and I came down to two reasons why we give gifts and send cards and so forth in the first place. And I believe, as I forgot my clicker, you know, if we survive this week at my house, we'll be doing good. I'm excited to get my wife back after tonight's program. I believe we send out cards for two reasons, either out of love or obligation. I ran through a series of reasons why, and it seemed like they all came back to those two reasons, either love or obligation. I think they cover all the reasons why we give gifts. The highest motivation is, of course, love. We give a gift, we send a gift, we give them because we love the person we're giving them to. Our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, our grandparents, our family, our close friends, and to others. Hopefully we give a gift because we love them. And so we take the time, the effort, the money, the thought that comes behind the gift to figure out why and what would they like to give them this year. And we get that. And then, of course, the other motivation would be obligation. I have to give a gift to this person because they're going to give a gift to me. I have to give a gift to this person because I'll feel guilty if I don't give them a gift. Uh, They're my children's teachers, so we have to give them a gift. My mailman, uh, my neighbors, my whomever, because of obligation, because of uh, the reason they might give me a gift or it's expected that I give a gift, we give a gift out of obligation. But you know what? Love should be the motive behind our gift giving. Love should be the motive behind all the things that we do during this season of the year. I love something I ran across this past week, written by someone, we don't know who the author is, but it's 1 Corinthians 13, the Christmas version. Here's what they wrote. If I decorate my house perfectly with plaid bows, strands of twinkling lights and shiny balls, but do not have love, I'm just another decorator. 
If I slave away in the kitchen, baking dozens of Christmas cookies, preparing gourmet meals and arranging a beautifully adorned table at mealtime, but do not have love, I'm just another cook. If I work at a soup kitchen, carol in the nursing home, and give all that I have to charity, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. If I trim the spruce with shimmering angels and crocheted snowflakes, attend a myriad of holiday parties, and sing in the choir's cantata, but do not focus on Christ, I have missed the point. Love stops the cooking to hug the child. Love sets aside the decorating to kiss the spouse. Love is kind, though harried and tired. Love does not envy another's home that has coordinated Christmas china and table linens. Love does not yell at the kids to get out of the way, but is thankful that they are there to be in the way. Love does not give only to those who are able to give in return, but rejoices in giving to those who cannot. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Toys will break. Pearl necklaces will get lost. Golf clubs will rust. But giving the gift of love will endure. Love is the key. Love is the motivation. Love is the focus. Was it not love That motivated the first Christmas so long ago. The majority of us in here know this verse. John 316. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at the Christmas story from John's gospel. And it's different from some of the other accounts because uh, it does not mention the wise men and the angels. He knew about those, but his focus is upon the word. And so far, we've studied from uh, verse one down through verse 10. And today we want to pick up our study of John one by looking at verses 11 through 13. If you have your copy of God's word, I would encourage you to find it and open to the gospel of John chapter one. And we're going to be reading verses 11 through 13. The Bible says in John 1:11, talking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Three verses. My outline is very simple today. First of all, we notice here that he came. Who came? The word came. The Lord Jesus, the eternal son of God, the creator, the life and light of men, the light of the world. He came just two words. He came just six letters. He came. But oh, how glorious. Did you notice that those two words summarize Christmas? He came. Jesus came. God came robed in the flesh. God became a man. He came. I love what Tozier said. All of our hopes and dreams of of immortality, our fond visions of a life to come, are summed up in these simple words in the Bible record. He came. These words are wiser than all learning. Understood in their high spiritual context. They're more beautiful than all art. 
more eloquent than all oratory, more lyric and moving than all music, because they tell us that all of mankind sitting in darkness has been visited by the light of the world. He came. And listen, take that with you today. Take that with you throughout this Christmas season. Those two words, he came, the word came, the light of the world came, Jesus came. We often sing at Christmas time, what child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping this This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. He came. Hallelujah. He came. But as you keep reading the verse, it becomes quite puzzling. He came, but we wish the verse wouldn't add this, but it does. He came, but he was rejected. Look at the next part. It says he came into his own and his own did not receive him. We have two owns mentioned here in this verse. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. The first own probably talks about the world or mankind in general. He came into his own. He did not step into something that did not belong to him. It was his world. He created it. He is God. And he came into his own. But then we notice A second own here, and that is probably meaning the Jewish people, God's chosen people. He came into his own and his own received him not. They were looking for the Messiah. The Messiah came and they rejected him. They did not receive him. Now, of course, there were some who did, but as a whole, as a nation, they rejected their Messiah. They did not receive him. I thank God for the wonderful study Bibles we have. We have so many Bible helps to help us understand the word. And I noticed in one of my study Bibles a note that said that the word receive here means to receive with favor. It implies welcome. And it said instead of receiving a welcome mat, Jesus had a door slammed in his face. That's what this verse is teaching. He came into his own. And instead of putting out the welcome mat, instead of receiving him joyfully, they slammed the door in his face. Think of this. The one who created the world, the one who created everyone in the world, came to the world he created, came to the people he created. And instead of putting out the welcome mat, they slammed the door in his face. The one who graciously chose Abraham and his descendants to be God's special people, they rejected him. You know, we talked a little bit ago about giving gifts to others and how there are two motives, the two motives of love and obligation. Listen to what Lance Wubbles wrote. Wubbles said, if we buy a gift for someone who is not family, it is probably because they gave us a gift last year and we feel obligated. On the other hand, we don't give gifts to the person who has been slandering our name or to the angry neighbor who never has a kind word to say. Jesus is the ultimate gift because of the grace by which he was given. This is what makes his gift so special. He doesn't owe us a thing. We were in constant rebellion against him and his will for our lives. And with that in mind, the Apostle Paul says something remarkable in Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. You know, it's one thing to give a gift because you're obligated because of someone that you know or work with or at least like. But imagine giving a gift to someone who despises you and hates you and slanders you. That's what God did in sending the Lord Jesus. He came even though he knew he was going to be rejected. And let's just be honest about it. Rejection is so hard, isn't it? Rejection is difficult. No one wants to face rejection. Some of us were so glad maybe we got out of school. Because maybe in school you faced rejection. You couldn't wait till you could get out of school and graduate and, and move on from people who rejected you. But yet you'll find as you go through life that rejection follows you at times, doesn't it? And there are those who will not receive you and those who reject you. But listen, if you're here today and maybe you're feeling that, maybe you're wrestling with that, maybe you're struggling with that. If you are, please know you can run to Jesus. He knows all about rejection. He knows all about being turned away. He knows all about the door being slammed in his face. He understands that he came and he was rejected. And when you face rejection, friend, you can run to Jesus. He understands totally. But praise the Lord, the verse does not stop and the scripture does not stop here. He came and he was rejected, but we're not through. We notice in verses 12 and 13 that not only was he rejected, but he was received. The gift was given, and just like other gifts, uh, it can be received or rejected. And thanks be to God that there are those who receive the Lord Jesus, and people are still receiving him. Verses 12 and 13 are so rich. We'll merely scratch the surface on them. You know, when I'm preparing for a message and studying, I read widely, I study, and I have a uh, book of sermons in my library um, on John chapter 1. Written by a preacher who's now in heaven. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I was amazed when I went to see what Lloyd-Jones had to say about this. He had 18 separate sermons on verses 12 and 13. 18 separate verses on two verses. And some of you thought I was slow in getting through a chapter of Scripture. I don't want to hear that anymore. Because Lloyd-Jones took 18 sermons on two verses. But these two verses tell us how we become the children of God. Verse 13 generally tells us how we do not become God's children. And verse 12 generally tells us how we do become his child. Let's start with the how we don't. How we do not become God's children. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh... Nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, we are born into the family of God, born again, the new birth. Uh, but this verse tells us that it does not happen uh, because of several things. First of all, it says it's not a blood. So what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Well, that means we're not born into the family of God by our bloodline, by our heritage, by our genes, through the blood that's passed into our bodies. Our parents may have been Christians. But that does not make us a Christian. Our grandparents may have been a Christian, but that does not make us a Christian. This is not something that we obtain by natural birth from our earthly parents. It's not a blood. Likewise, it says it's not the will of the flesh. That is, we do not have the power within our flesh to bring about new birth. We cannot do enough. We cannot exert enough effort. We cannot do anything within our flesh to bring about new birth. To be born again, to be into the family of God. 
So it's not through our bloodline. It's not through the efforts of our flesh. And it says it's not the will of man. The will of man cannot save anyone. Someone may have a burden for somebody and you really want to see them saved. That's your desire. You long for them to come to faith in Christ. But you cannot will someone to be saved. The will cannot do anything to save you. And so these are some things that uh, do not bring about salvation. So the question, of course, is this. Well, then, preacher, how then is a person saved? Well, you notice it says at the end that it's not the will of man, but of God. Salvation is all the grace of God. He's the only one that can save us. And that brings us back to verse 12. Verse 12 says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. I've said this probably many times on Wednesday night Bible study over the years. We're talking about salvation, talking about the means of salvation. I bring up the topic of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That's been debated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years throughout Christianity. Are we saved because of divine sovereignty or are we saved because of human responsibility? The Bible teaches predestination. The Bible teaches election and the Bible also teaches repentance and faith. And the way that I've understood this through the years, the way that I've taught this through the years is using the idea of a plumb bob. Y'all know what a plumb bob is? And I meant to bring my plumb bob with me and I left it on my desk. But a plumb bob is a tool that contractors use and builders use to make sure that something is square. If you're building a concrete wall, a brick wall, or even a wood wall, you have a string and you have a plumb bob that's there. And you can see if your wall is square. And it looks like this. There's a plumb bob in the middle. Hangs down from a string. And it can look a lot of different ways. There are antique plumb bobs. We'll even collect plumb bobs, I think. But a plumb bob is a simple tool to make sure that something is square. You notice I have two sides of that plumb bob. I have divine sovereignty. That is God's sovereignty. Predestination election. And then on the other side, I have human responsibility, repentance and faith. And what I find as humans is that we tend to one extreme or the other. But blessed are the balance. You see, we get in trouble when we begin to take the plumb bob and push it to the left or push it to the right. It's important that you keep it right in the center because the Bible teaches divine sovereignty. The Bible teaches human responsibility. The Bible says a person cannot be saved unless the Holy Spirit draws that person to God. That is convicting them, convincing them. But the Bible also says that we have to repent. That is turn from our sin and place our faith in the Lord Jesus. He said, wait a minute, preacher. You're saying the Bible teaches that God calls a person And that's how they're saved. But the Bible also says that a person has to repent and believe. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? I don't understand all that. Well, can I just be honest? Neither do I. But thank God he does. Thank God he does. You know what I found in my Christian life and in studying the Bible? If I could understand everything, I would be God. But I'm not God and you're not God. And we take his word by faith and his word says that unless he draws so unto himself, they'll not be saved. But the Bible also says whosoever will may come. 
And that's why I have my plumb bob. And I used to even keep it on my desk years ago. I keep it hanging in my closet at my office now. And I pull it out once in a while when I'm teaching. And I meant to bring it. But there it is. And want to keep it right there in the center, knowing that God works to bring us to himself. But he also tells us we must repent and believe. And we see that balance in verse 12. Did you see it? Look back at verse 12. But as many as received him, look at the end, to those who believe in his name, human responsibility. But did you notice the middle divine sovereignty? But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Did you notice the three verbs in that verse? The three verbs, the verbs of believe. Receive and become. We receive him and believe on his name. What does that mean to believe on his name? Does that mean we just believe that there was a Jesus? No. To believe on his name means to believe on his character, who he is. He is God. He's the Savior. And it says that if we do that, he gives us the right. That is the power, the authority, the honor, the privilege to become the children of God. He saves us, but all the while he enables us to believe and receive him. I know it's mind boggling. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We're blind. And yet God shines the glorious light of the gospel into our lives. He calls us to himself and then he empowers us and enables us to receive him and believe and repent. Now, I know that's a lot to process because you've been busy thinking about gifts and cookies and programs. And those things are good. But take a moment and think about this. This is why Jesus came. He came that we might believe and receive him as he gives us the right to become the children of God. God became a child so that we could become a child of God. Think about it. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And so you think about this gift that Jesus came and he was born, placed in that manger. And the question for Christmas is this. What will we do with Jesus? What will we do with Jesus? What will we do with his gift? Now, listen, beloved, when it comes to this gift, we can either receive it or we can reject it. Hear me. You cannot remain neutral. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to make a decision. You just made a decision. You can either receive him or you can reject him. You say, well, I'm not going to make a decision. Then you reject him. You cannot remain neutral. Now, please hear me correctly and clearly this morning. Jesus is not asking you to give him a little nod or a wink or a moment of your time. Jesus is asking for your life. He wants to be your Lord and Savior. Your Lord and Savior. You know, there are a lot of people that only attend, uh, only attend church on three occasions. We might call them the CEF crowd. They come for Christmas and Easter and funerals. They're the CEF crowd. 
And if that's you, listen, that's not a cut. That, I'm so glad you're here. And I really mean that. And I'm glad you come back on Easter. And I know the family's blessed that you come for funerals. But I hope you'll come more. We have to understand that Jesus wants our all. Understand Jim was leaving church after uh, the Christmas services when the pastor greeted him and said, Jim, it's time you join the army of the Lord. We need to see you here every Sunday. And Jim said to the preacher, he said, I'm already in the army of the Lord, pastor. The pastor said, then why do we only see you on Christmas and Easter? And Jim looked to the right and looked to the left and then leaned over to whisper, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) Now, listen, can I just tell you, there is no such branch in the Lord's army. There is no secret service. There is none. Jesus wants your life. You're all to be your Lord and your Savior. And so the question is this. What will we do with Jesus? Let me make it more personal. What will you do with Jesus? You say, oh, well, we'll receive him. No, what will you do with Jesus? Remember what we said, it's not of blood. It's not of the flesh. It's not of the will of man. But of God. You must personally repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And as you do so, God, as he's drawing you to himself, gives you the right to become the children of God. And so here's the question today. Will you commit your life to the Lord Jesus? Will you give your life to Jesus today? And then I know I'm speaking to people here today who've already done that. And this type of message, you might be tempted to check out and say, well, I've got that settled. Praise the Lord. No, no, I want you to think about something. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ. No, not get saved again. You're only truly saved one time. But but maybe you've grown cold in your relationship with him. Maybe you've allowed some sin to creep into your life. Maybe you're not as faithful to him and stand for him as you are. We studied this morning in our adult classes and the, uh, the teens upward about standing in against the opposition that comes against us as we live for the Lord Jesus. Maybe this Christmas season you need to come and bow at this altar and with a fresh surrender say, Lord, forgive me, I have grown cold. I have been distracted. I don't love you like I used to love you. I don't focus on you like I used to. Maybe this Christmas season you need to come and give a fresh commitment to the Lord. And say, Lord, here I am again. I give you my life afresh and anew. Maybe you're treating Jesus like someone that you give a gift out of obligation rather than love. You can tell if you're at that point, you know why? When Sunday rolls around and you say things like, I have to go to church and I have to sing and I have to give and I have to do this and I have to do that. And you forget it's not a have to, it's a get to. I get to go to church. I get to sing. I I get to glorify God. I get to pray. I get to share my faith. It's a blessing. It's all because of God's amazing grace. So come today if you need to, dear friend, and rekindle and refresh your first love, the love for the one who came. And thank God today that he came.
He came. You can't remember anything else. Would you remember that? As you leave today, remember this. He came. He came. And guess what? He came for you and he came for me. Would you give your life to him today? And if you've already done that and you've grown cold, would you make a fresh commitment today saying, Lord, you came. I'm coming now to rekindle my first love. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the truth. We feel so inadequate. Lord, we've only scratched the surface of these scriptures and our mind is already overwhelmed. when We consider this whole idea of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and all that goes with that. But we thank you that we rest in the fact that you know, you understand and you're in control. You've told us to repent and to believe. So, Father, as you draw people to yourself this morning. I pray they would surrender to your calling upon their life. That there are those today who would repent and believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then I pray, Lord, for those who've settled that and yet they've wandered away. They've grown cold. I pray, Lord, that you would work in their lives and may they come today and make a fresh surrender, a recommitment of their life and their all. To the Lord Jesus, not for heaven, that's already settled, but for now, as we live our lives for your glory. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he came. In his name we pray. Amen. Number 86 is our closing hymn. Oh, little town of Bethlehem and friend, the altar is open today. If we could help you in this, we would love to do that. If you need to be saved, just come let us know that. Say, preacher, what will happen if I walk down the aisle and told you that I want to be saved? We won't embarrass you. We won't take you and put you in front of the church right now. We're, all we're going to do is we're going to take a Bible and we're going to share Christ with you and help you, pray with you, and lead you to the cross. And then there I know, know there are a lot of folks here who know Christ, but maybe God's spoken to your heart today. This altar is open. Come and do business with God today. Obey the Holy Spirit's guidance. 86, let's stand and sing, O little town of Bethlehem.